This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Very few people can be taken in a tragic way and have an impact across, it seems, everything. News world, sports world, entertainment world. Kobe Bryant started playing basketball and being noticed about the same time that we started being able to email people. And that kind of puts it into perspective that whatever has gone about in the way that we consume media, he's been there. And he's been at the forefront because of his ability, because of what he has meant, because of the ambassador role he took on, not just for the L.A. Lakers, but for basketball. And then to find out yesterday that he had passed away as suddenly and as tragically, along with his 13-year-old daughter and with seven other people in a helicopter crash in California, it's taken a lot of people, especially young people, and, and it's made this a, a really difficult thing to deal with. We are fortunate right now to be joined by Garrett Williamson of the London Lightning in studio. Garrett grew up in Philadelphia. You wear Kobe's shoes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was yesterday like for you? Um, uh, it was shocking. Um, you know, it, it hit me a little harder than I expected. Just, you know, the loss of everybody involved in the crash. You know, his daughter, who was a prodigy and a talent. Um, the other family lost. And, um, you know, Kobe was like the the pulse or the heartbeat for Lower Marion and, and Aces Nation and kind of that, that brotherhood. And um, so it felt like we lost a brother yesterday. And, um it, it still doesn't feel real, you know, like he, he kind of set the standard. He set the standard for excellence for, you know, when I was a kid growing up playing on the same playgrounds as him, playing in the same gyms as him, um, you know, he kind of let you know that that impossible was possible, um, you know, and all those hours where you thought nobody was working or you were tired, um, you know, the standard was Kobe was always working and, you know, do what Kobe did and anything's possible. And um, he really kind of that work ethic, that uh, fierce competitiveness, um, you know, that kind of just becomes ingrained in you. You know, there's there's no easy way to success. It comes with hard work and, um, you know, his respect for the game. I, th- I thought that he just started another chapter of his life, you know, being a family man and um, really dedicating himself to his daughter. And his and his and that kind of really was like, you know, there's, you got taken too soon, you know. Only 41 years old. Yeah. You talk about stepping on those same playgrounds, those same mm-hmm. courts, you go back to those days when when you were young, mm-hmm. that awareness was there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, growing up in the, in the neighborhood, you know, somebody can make it out of the same neighborhood as you, uh, you know, to get to his level of success. And, you know, like growing up, our coaches always kind of told us this is what Kobe did. You know, like I remember shoveling, you know, the court off in the wintertime to go shoot because that's what Kobe did. Or, you know, the countless hours, he you just knew that he set the recipes for success. And uh, there was no shortcut around it. Um, you know, every time he came back and met with us, it, you could just feel the fierce competitor he was. Um, uh, I try to find peace with it, knowing that he gave it everything he had while he was here. And I think that that's something that, you know, will, will me, allow me to kind of get through it a little easier. But it's still, it's a shock to, to the basketball world, a shock to the community. Um, you know, it's tough. Garrett, the first time you saw him in person, mm-hmm. take us back to that. What was that like? Um... First time I saw him in person, I think we had a practice, and he showed up, and he had a hood on, so we didn't really know who he was, and there was a little Asian guy with him. 
And we were kind of like, I think that's Kobe over there. Like, yeah, that might be. And Did we, you know maybe he was coming? No, I mean, we knew he played the Sixers that night. So, like, he, every you know, he'd pop up at the school sometimes or he'd walk through the hallways or he'd come back to practice. And um, I think we were in, like, a playoff run. And, you know, the way he spoke to us wasn't like, you know, we're kids and we're not allowed to curse. And he came on there and he he laid in on it. You know, he just there's no mercy, you know, ripping people's hearts out. And, um you know, it kind of was like, whoa, this guy's no joke. And then over the years when I would meet him again, he was always – he always had that sharpness to him where he was still locked in. Um, like I'd go see him after a Sixers game and he'd come and sit and talk to us and it'd be like an hour and a half after the game. He's still talking about plays in the game. He's still talking about, you know, certain plays. I like call me Brown didn't catch this pass or whatever. But he was just always dissecting the game. Um, he, he mastered his craft. He put a lot of hours in. Um, and, you know – when we were growing up, that's just what we had to do. There was no, you know, if you didn't feel like doing something, well, Kobe did it. You know, you don't want to be great. And you just always, always more to chase. There was always something else to go after. And um, it was tough yesterday. I really took some time to think of what he kind of really meant to me. Because like you said, I, I still lace up every game. I only wear Kobe's. Like, I feel like I carried a bit of him with me throughout. You know, I've been playing basketball since I was six. You know, I've been playing 10 years professionally. And I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have gone to Lauren in high school. I wouldn't have you know, maybe looked at the game the same way I do. Um, and, you know, I'm forever indebted and grateful for it. Garrett Williamson of the London Lightning joining us in studio as we talk about the life of Kobe Bryant. Now, when when you look at it from a, a professional standpoint, that work, you've mentioned that work ethic. Mm-hmm. He was known for being so competitive, but you, you kind of lose sight of the competitiveness and then the talent. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily think about that work. Is that mm-hmm. something he would stress when he talked to you or is that something he did by example? I think that was a little of both. Um, you know, we would just hear stories growing up of, you know, Kobe being here till the lights shut off. So in high school, we would get the keys. We would stay until the lights shut off. And like, you just kind of, you wanted to do everything Kobe did. You want to walk like Kobe. You want to have that swagger. You want to play like him. Um, yeah, we knew the hours he was putting in. And for him to be that great and work that hard at it, that was, you know, that was just kind of what you had to do. If you, and I, I feel like it carries over to life. If you want to do anything and be great at it, you have to put that type of work in and that passion for it. Um, you know, is it, he's the GOAT, in my opinion. He's the greatest of all time, the fiercest competitor, hardest worker. Um, you know, every time I step on the floor, I try to have some of that with me. So, yeah, it's we lost a good one. When you look at that competitive nature, mm-hmm. how how did his differ from everyone else's? Mm-hmm. I just refused to lose. You know, if he if he smelled blood, he was going to come for the kill. He wasn't going to take it easy on you. Um, it didn't matter who you were. You know, if if he's lacing up and he's getting on the court, he's you know he's trying to come at you every single play. He's relentless um, on both ends on the floor. And when he's going to and when he's doing it, he's going to tell you about it. And you know, there's there's a swagger with comes with being that great, but it also came with a lot of hard work and just knowing that he put more work in than everybody else and his skill set was beyond everybody else's. And ultimately, you know, he's the greatest of all time, in my opinion. And, um, you know, it came from a lot of sacrifice, you know, a lot of, a lot of time alone in the gym and, and, and the unseen hours. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> everybody thinks about his offense mm-hmm. and, you know, whether it's the 60-point games or whether it's a performance in a fourth quarter in a mm-hmm. playoff game mm-hmm. that brought the Lakers to a victory. But you mentioned it, the other ends of the floor. He he was a 
12-time defensive all-star. Mm-hmm. He was a guy, could he be put in any situation? Was he the guy that you could look at as a basketball player and learn anything about anything that was going on just by seeing what Kobe was doing? I just think he, he's a guy that wanted to be the best at whatever he was doing. If he was if he was going to step foot on the court and know somebody out there that was better than him, then he's going to guard him. If then he's going to go at him on offense. And he's just trying to every night he's got something to prove. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Um, and he went out and did it, you know. It's kind of crazy. And the loyalty aspect of this. you know, Are we ever going to see somebody 20 years with a single team anymore in the NBA? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's tough because for me it was, you know, it was low. I knew him on that lower Marion, that the beginning stages, and that kind of was like the Kobe that we came to know and love, and then he went on to the Lakers, and it was just, you know, lower Marion and the Lakers was about all it was. And to see him, how he would come back to, to the high school, how he still interacted with, like, our coach, and, you know, if I was – like, he's still – he was never too big to come back around. You know what I mean? And um, I think that his loyalty is, you know, what made him so great. You, see, you hear stories of, of him calling people, talking about leadership, mm-hmm. calling people, talking about anything that he happened to be interested mm-hmm. in. He he had that. I'm I'm all in on, yeah. on anything. Now, yeah. have you talked to many people from Philadelphia today? Uh, I, when I first heard the news, you know, I, I messaged – couple of my buddies and you know I, I was like is this is this real and my other best friend who uh played at my high school went on he, he just finishes i think he's been playing nine years pro as well 10 years and uh he was like yeah it's true and it's just heavy i haven't yet yesterday was kind of like i was just taking it all in i didn't really talk to a whole lot of people talk to my my siblings and stuff and they you know they came up playing for Lauren marion as well and um they just felt like they said they feel like i lost a family member feel like i lost a brother and um you know, I, I, I'm going to call out and reach out to a lot of the my Lower Marion family in the next couple of days or so, but I really had to take a day yesterday to just kind of process everything. And um, even this morning when I woke up, it it was like, damn, like, you know, I, Kobe's not here. And it didn't, you know, I, it didn't really feel real. I had to kind of shut social media off for a bit. And, um, yeah, it's sad. It's, it's sad for the for the young lives lost as well in the crash. And, you know, there was a lot of potential. But, like, his daughter Gigi, you could see her. She was coming around more, working out all the time. Um, and having him guide yeah, and that, wouldn't help. Life, life wouldn't hurt. Life is precious, and it really puts it in perspective that you know, tell the ones you love that you love them. You know, and just kind of cherish every day and um, maximize every day um, because tomorrow could be taken. And don't take it for granted. Well said, Garrett Williamson, with us from the London Lightning, Lower Marion. What what is that like? Can you describe it for anybody who has never been to that area? Uh you know, it's a it's a suburb of Philadelphia, borders West Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's legit a stone throw from the city limits, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a suburban neighborhood. Basketball is huge there. You know, like I, you know, growing up playing at the playgrounds, I'd be up there, ride my bike to the course, be there till the light shut out at night. And, uh, you know, it's, when you go back to Lower Marion, it's something special. Like I just got inducted in the hall of fame a year or two ago. And, you know, whenever you come back, it's like family. Um, the basketball culture there is unreal. Um, you know, they just built the new Kobe Bryant gymnasium, and there's murals on the wall. It's just, it's a special place. Um, it's where I cultivated my skills. I cultivated the love for the game. Um, and much of that stemmed from, you know, like Kobe Bryant. You know, I was proud to wear the Lower Marion jersey. I was proud to, you know, say I played for Lower Marion because of Kobe. I'm, you know, I'm proud to be in any conversation with Kobe Bryant. So, um, you know, Kobe being Bryant, he's the GOAT. It's, it's, was there a jersey of his anywhere in? Yeah, there's you know there's a jersey that like when I when I played I played on the original court that Kobe played on. Wow. Um, but I think I was the last team to play there. The next year they built the Kobe Gymnasium. 
Um, there's a shrine there with Kobe. Um, I've got, you know, mural beef holding a state championship trophy up around the gym and, you know, Kobe's right in the other ones. And it's, uh, it's a special place. We did some things there that, um, you know, built memories forever. Like I didn't win another championship until I came here to London and I was chasing that feeling for years. And, you know, it took me since, you know, 18 to about, you know, 10 years or so until I won another one. And, um, it's a special place. It's, it's, it really is. Um, you know, and Kobe kept coming back for a reason. You know, yeah. he built a lot of memories, a lot of uh, bonds and friendships there. And, um, yeah, it was, it was special. We were always chasing, you know, Kobe won the state championship. We we're chasing the championship. You know, it's, you're always, you, there was always something to chase because of Kobe. And a lot of times what we were chasing might have been out of reach, but, um, you know, if you put your best at it, you know, good stuff comes. And that extra motivation sometimes. Sometimes that's the difference. You get two mm-hmm. teams in a, a final or in a championship series now in pro and, mm-hmm you just need that extra motivation. Would mm-hmm. that give that to you guys? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you put that jersey on, you know what you're, what comes with it. Um, you know, playing for Lower Marion, there was only one expectation, that was to win. And it was always to win. And, you know, was, if it came the easy way or the hard way, but you're always going to work for it. And, um, you know, I, it really is. Lower Marion is a special place and always will be. It really will be. Well, Garrett, we want to thank you for coming in and, and sharing the memories of Kobe Bryant. It is a devastating loss for anyone who was motivated, inspired by him, or in your case, actually knew him. Before we let you go, you do have a team that's off to an eight and two start, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the basketball world is going to grieve for a little while. But when you look at, at the play of the team so far, do you feel that this is this is kind of who you guys are, an eight and two team? Yeah, I mean, we uh, let our last one slip away to Moncton. Um, hope to bounce back on Thursday. I think we got a good group this year. Um, it's it's fun to come to work. These guys are learning and getting better every day. Um, got a positive outlook on the game, working hard. Uh, I, I think the sky's the limit. Uh, I mean, I'm only here to win championships. That's that's really the only reason I'm playing. And um, I, I think we got a chance to do something special again here. And um, you know. It'll be fun. You describe chasing that feeling, whether it's a state championship, mm-hmm. whether it's a championship in the professional mm-hmm. league. Does it bring about a similar feeling? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, only one team at the end of the day can win their last game. And, you know, you you want to be on top. That's, I don't know, that's just why you play, to be a winner. And, um, you know, it's not about personal accolades. Like, you can't take a championship away from anybody. You can't debate it. You can't. There's no question, you know, and I, for me, that's all I'm chasing right now at this stage of my career. And uh, I'd love to bring another one back to London. You've been able to stay here in London for a while. Mm-hmm. What is it about London that keeps bringing you back? Uh, I mean, I'm a dual citizen, so uh, Canada is kind of like a second home to me. My mother grew up outside of Toronto. Um, I know the organization. I know Vito and the family, and it, it's it's a comfortable place to play. Um, I love the fans here. Um, it's like a second home for me, really. Yeah, well, I mean, you've, you've built an awful lot of memories, a lot mm-hmm. of fun ones so far, so mm-hmm. we'll see what what next ones happen to be out there. I look forward to it. Garrett, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. That is Garrett Williamson of the London Lightning talking about Kobe Bryant, who tragically died yesterday in a helicopter crash in California that claimed the lives of nine people, including Kobe's 13-year-old daughter, who, as Garrett pointed out, was a prodigy, was was bringing about the game and uh, and was really starting to excel in the game. And 
And there were some other other lives lost in that crash as well. And we saw some tributes earlier today. We saw Nick Kyrgios at the Australian Open wear a Kobe Bryant number 8 jersey as he came out onto the court to play Rafael Nadal. And we saw Coco Goff, who's just 15 years old and is one of tennis's next female prodigies. She's absolutely amazing in what she's doing so far. And she had the number 8 and the number 24 on her shoes, Colby Bryant's two numbers, and she had a little message about Mamba Power on her shoes, and then she went out and played at the Australian Open today. And uh, we'll see more and more tributes, won't we, Garrett? Yeah. Uh, I know Coco's hitting coach is a, a Lower Marion alumni as well. Are so. you really? Yeah, he's one of my buddies. No she, way. She's a, she's a special talent as well. Does he talk like that about her? Did he Did he uh, kind of say, hey, guess what? You, you should see who's coming up the ranks now? Yeah, I'm sure he put that, uh, that Lower Marion work ethic out there for her. So, yeah. yeah. Well, like you just described, it can take you to very, very high places. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a thing that Colby Bryant continued to help foster after he had left Lower Marion just by going back. And then, of course, yesterday you had the Toronto Raptors and the San Antonio Spurs as they began their game. And we'll see. I, I haven't seen whether it's happened in any other NBA games, but you would have to think it's a possibility where you inbound the ball and the first possession that you get after the tip, you kind of let the shot clock tip down or tick down to zero from 24. And then the other team does the very same thing. So the ball winds up in the same hands it was going to. And 48 seconds have gone off the clock. But uh, that was a fitting tribute for Kobe Bryant as well. We've got news coming up in just a couple of minutes. And then we are going to talk a little bit more about the social media aspect and how that has played out. People turning to social media to share their stories, to share their feelings about the loss of someone like Kobe Bryant, who again touched so many different aspects of so many lives. And we're talking from people who maybe just appreciated his last couple of years of playing basketball, but certainly thanks to things like YouTube can go back and see what this guy was able to do earlier on in his career and just how good he was. And next thing you know, you're watching parts of finals with Shaquille O'Neal. You're watching him after Shaq had left go and win two more championships and do it in a way where maybe his body wasn't as healthy as it once was, but he still found a way, as Garrett described. That's that's just the way it was. You you didn't stop until you had what you wanted. Kobe Bryant passed away yesterday at the age of 41. Major concern that everybody is going to have, and this goes to a lot of headlines. This goes to a lot of things that can be overhyped. And I think it's important to step back. And that is the coronavirus, which is a terrible name. It's a terrible name because the coronavirus is actually an umbrella term for a number of other viruses. And what we need is, you know, when we had SARS, SARS is under the umbrella of the coronavirus. So we like to think in what we're reading right now, well, there was SARS and then there's the coronavirus. No, 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 no. There's kind of a relationship between those two viruses. And so what we need to do is we need to step back a little bit because it's easy to bring about mass hysteria. I heard a story earlier today about somebody buying a hazmat suit and starting to stock up on food. You Okay, it's never a bad thing, I guess, to have a hazmat suit handy. It's certainly never a bad thing to stock up on food. 
I don't know when we're going to bring about a day when that's going to be helpful, and you sure shouldn't tell anybody that you've been stockpiling food. I read a book a while ago, and I've brought it up a couple of times on the show, but if you want to read a book that makes you think, yeah, I should probably stockpile on some some stuff too, it's called One Second After, and it's about the detonation of a nuclear weapon high up in the stratosphere so that it doesn't do any damage physically to anyone down on Earth. In other words, we're not killing thousands or millions of people. What it does do is it wipes out everything electronic. just takes it away. And this book explores what life is like after that. It's not good. It's not good at all. We are not prepared. And we learned basically nothing from losing electricity in 2003. We learned nothing. We couldn't even handle ourselves through the first 24 hours. People were trying to figure out what to do. They were losing meat. They, were, they had no gas. They were... People, it's, it's been less than 24 hours. What if it had to be a week? Most of us can't survive more than a couple of days based on what we bring in. What's the best way to get deals at the grocery store? You go every single day. Well, today, look, chicken's on sale. I'm going to buy some chicken. You going to buy anything else? No, it's not on sale. I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow, cereal's on sale. Hey, you're going to buy the cereal on sale? Yes. You're going to buy that chicken? No, it's not on sale anymore. What about the ground beef? Never on sale. We're paying way too much for ground beef, but there are factors there. But the point is, we're not ready for any of this. However, we don't need mass hysteria. Maybe we need to learn a little bit better preparation. Sure, better preparation. That would be fantastic. However, what we do not need is people saying, this is the end of the world, this is terrible, this is awful, this is crazy. And so I want to take you back to a conversation that we had last week, just a little snippet of it, because we were able to speak with a well-known immunologist. Her name is Dr. Eleanor Fish, and she was nice enough that she was actually on vacation and said she felt it was important to talk to us about some of the headlines that we were seeing. So here is Dr. Eleanor Fish, just in case you missed it, on how concerned she is about the coronavirus. So first of all, your listeners should appreciate that the term coronavirus, all it means is that the virus is characterized by the fact that on its surface, it looks like it's got a crown. That's the corona bit, okay? Um, they should also be reassured because another coronavirus um, we were familiar with is the SARS coronavirus. And subsequent to that, we put in place all kinds of protocols and mechanisms and infrastructure that should this new coronavirus arrive in Canada, we are extremely well prepared. And we know that it is kind of arriving now we've they're using very unspecific terms to describe things because again you don't want if you're a health official you know what the last thing you want to do is step up to a microphone and say guess what people the coronavirus is here because the little that people know about it will cause them running into the streets we'll be selling hazmat suits on every corner No, that's not what you want to do. So they're using very, very 
vague terms to describe what actually is happening with a couple of patients. But when SARS was going on, what did we have? We had protocols that went into place. If you were in a hospital in Canada during the SARS outbreak, you could not turn around without signing a form. Some of them were waivers. Some of them were so that they could keep track of where you were. There were all kinds of things going on. My son was born during SARS. He was hours old. There was SARS present in the hospital. He's now 16 and just got his license. So SARS was not a big factor to him. In fact, he doesn't get a cold a lot. Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe he didn't come into contact. So, you know, I don't, I'm not making light of this, but the flu ends up killing a lot of people every year. And different types of viruses, you know, whether it's a flu virus, whether it's, you know, something under the coronavirus umbrella, whether it's, you name it, a respiratory illness, that ends up taking lives every year. And it's people who are in, unfortunately, compromised positions. And it's very tragic. But we don't hear about that. But we have protocols in place. And those protocols are already being put in place. You think if there's a suspected case of the coronavirus that still needs a name, this is the problem. Please give it a name. It needs something. You know, what do we have? We, we've had bird flu, swine flu, H1N1, H5N4. It, usually there's an H and an N, and it's got some values to it. I haven't seen anything like that attributed to this because it's a little bit different. It's a little, this, is, this is kind of the you know, same sort of thing as SARS, as Dr. Eleanor Fish has just said. But overall, you know, you're, you're looking at this kind of thing happening. There are thousands of communicable diseases out there. This is one of them. So no matter what you hear... Remember Dr. Eleanor Fish. If you are in a compromised position, then do take precautions. But if you are not, then don't take unnecessary precautions. Don't hide out downstairs in the dark thinking, "Uh uh-oh, it's going to get me. Because that's no way to live. You know, otherwise we'd be hiding downstairs in the dark worrying that we might be hit by a a car as a pedestrian crossing the street. So just... Take heed of what is going on and remember and take a look very closely at how medical professionals are handling this or how an immunologist deals with this. She's not in Canada right now, but she's elsewhere in the world and is not worried. She's not wearing a mask on the plane, those sorts of things. So we have to look. If if you missed the actual interview, you can go back and find it in our podcast. You can find that at 980cfpl.ca, or you can certainly go to Curious Cast, and you can even subscribe, and you can get the London Live podcast. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, you can find it. And she did go on to say one of the main problems with other countries, China being one of them, is they don't have the same kind of protocols. They have people who live very close together. Therefore, it is much easier to share a virus among more than one person. Therefore, it seems to spread more quickly. And those sorts of things will happen in certain countries. Canada, really well prepared for something like this. So just just know that. Being healthy, we know it's important. Is it easy? No. No, it is not. Now, unfortunately, when things aren't all that easy, we sometimes kind of leave them to the side. You know, that's hard. So I've decided I'm going to do it when I'm ready. Because the hard stuff, yeah, I, I should be ready for that. True. Very true. But at the same time, it's pretty easy to put it off if that's kind of how we're looking at things. So what if we kind of looked at it from a different way? 
What if we looked at it from a community perspective? What if your community started to make itself a whole lot healthier or started to make itself available for people to be healthier? Would that make a big difference? Well, you know what? Yeah, it actually would. And Dr. Karen Lee is someone who has made it a quest. And this this is where we've got to begin. I love the word. Made it a quest to look around at communities and help them out, help to improve the entire world's health and wellness. And we're lucky enough to have Dr. Lee with us because she happened to be speaking not too far away from our London studios. Dr. Lee, how are things? Hi, Mike. Thank you. Um, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thanks for being here. First off, can we talk about the word quest? Because everybody's got these goals, and everybody's told it's it's good to have goals, and it's good to decide, you know, I'm going to try and lose 10 pounds in the next year. I'm going to try and walk more. I'm going to try and eat healthy. Those become some of those kind of healthy lifestyle goals. You were able to form a quest. How did that even happen? Well, you know, I've been pretty lucky in that, um, you know, I've worked with different organizations and municipalities and cities around the world uh, who've been trying to do some of this. And so it was able to, you know, learn from them uh, as well as work with them and capture these different stories of like real world examples of how cities and communities and towns uh, have been making their environments uh, healthier for people. So it's easier to walk, to be active, to eat more healthily. And, you know, we've captured all these stories in a new book called Fit Cities. And there you go, your quest to improve health and wellness <laughs> everywhere. And it, it is underway. And how widespread has this kind of search been or this review gone? Uh, well, you know, the work that I've been involved with has occurred all over the world. So I spent a lot of time um, down in the U.S. before I came back to Canada recently. And when I was down in the U.S., I worked for Mayor Bloomberg's administration, where, you know, we worked in partnership across different departments with the private sector, and we're able to really improve, you know, our schools, our daycares, our work sites, our hospitals, and also just our community neighborhoods, right, for walkability, bikeability, transit access for the people who want to do those things, for healthy food access. You also want to decrease exposure to unhealthy foods. But I've also been involved with, like, you know, um, cities in, like, Asia. For example, Taipei and Taiwan. They actually line their uh, playgrounds with adult exercise equipment, right? So busy parents are able to actually exercise when they watch their kids play. Um, I've worked with Singapore, for example, and they had this great initiative where... Uh, they actually, um, you know, they, they, they worked with their small businesses that were selling street food. And they were asking these businesses, hey, can you make your street foods healthier? And they said, you know, by, by for example, offering whole grain noodles and healthier fats and oils. And these guys said, hey, you know, it's very expensive for us to buy these things. And so the uh, Singaporean government, through their health promotion board, actually help to coordinate the different businesses that were interested in buying and they could buy in bulk together and that cost excuse me that got, um helped them to get their costs down Man. so there's examples from you know all different places in the world Europe as well Latin America we're talking with Dr. Karen Lee author of Fit Cities and we mentioned it 
Dr. Lee had a quest improving the world's health and wellness and has been able to see what a lot of cities are doing. Dr. Lee, if we're to look at any city and maybe take a, another kind of major topic, something like transportation, we will argue here in London, Ontario, that in order to improve transportation in London, you would have to actually pick the city up, rearrange it in the air, and then put it back down because it's just kind of been built up and there are things that you just can't change. You look at a lot of European cities. They're very much like that where, yeah, the, the circular roads that we have, we can't change those. They're kind of there and somebody turned a horse path into a highway and that's just what it is. So when it comes to making a city healthier, what kinds of things can we look at to make changes that don't involve picking something up, rearranging it in the air, and putting it back down? Well, you know, Mike, I think that there's a lot of opportunities. Like We often think, oh, you know, those European cities made for cycling, like Copenhagen, they were always like that. But actually, you know, we when, when I was in New York, we actually worked with some of the planners uh, who used to work in Copenhagen and who continue to do work in Copenhagen. And they were finding that, you know, in the 1970s, Copenhagen was designed around the car as well. But because they made concerted efforts, so whenever you renovate your roads, right, there's an opportunity to maybe put additional amenities in uh, for the people who might want to walk or cycle or take transit. And, you know, even if you don't want to do that as a driver, by actually doing that for the people who want to do it, you can actually shift uh, cars off the road. So, you know, even for you as a driver, it can work out well because it can take traffic off the road. What we've found, I think, is that in many places, right, if you get a lot of traffic congestion, people are building more highways. But often that just fills up with more cars. So one of the ways that actually cities that have been successful in decreasing traffic congestion, one of the things that they've done is actually created these other modes uh, that people can use to travel uh, if they don't want to drive. And so some people will shift over, and that actually often also helps the drivers to get who are driving to get some less traffic congestion because cars go off the road. People enjoy that. Now, Dr. Lee, in a lot of these cases, how powerful is the power of suggestion where someone sees, oh, look, you know, they're, they're able to bike to work, or they talk to an, a coworker who says, yeah, yeah, I was able to, to bike in this morning or walk in this morning or use this and then all of a sudden it catches on. Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a study um, in, the, um, in um, <clears throat> California where they actually uh, introduced express elevators, right? And so all of the elevators, except for the one elevator that was meant for people who might need accessibility, have accessibility issues or were carrying heavy loads, uh, all of the elevators besides that one elevator would stop on, they reprogrammed the elevator so that it would stop at every third or fourth floor. And at first, people were like, what the heck? You know, now I have to walk three or four floors every day, which, of course, is really good for your health. Um, but, uh, but after about six months, when they resurveyed those folks, they've gotten used to it. Actually, they liked it because it got a little bit of activity into their day. They might run into their uh, colleagues on the stairwell. Um, and so people do get used to things. Sometimes it's, you know, a little bit different at first. Um, yeah, and so, you know, in the book, I think I'm trying to capture different ideas from around the world that are, like, in place right now uh, that can work in real life and that have been successful. And, you know, it's meant to be shared with, like, members of the public and lots of citizens and community residents so that they can say, hey, you know, 
I think that could work in my community. Why don't I have that in my community? <laughs> right? And then it's actually through those types of conversations that we can let our politicians know, hey, you know, I want that in my community for me and my kids or my aging parents. Uh, we can let our worksite organizations maybe work with them um, and so that they can improve the environments that we spend day in and day out on. Um, you know, if we, if our, our, we can work with our children's schools. If our children go to daycare, we can work with our children's daycare to make sure that there's enough activity incorporated into the day for our kids, that the foods that are being served our kids when we're not there is actually a healthy choice, not unhealthy choices. Dr. Karen Lee joining us, author of Fit Cities and a Quest to Improve the World's Health and Wellness. Dr. Lee, before we let you go, have you done any looking at London and area to see how we're doing? Well, I was in London today just for the day because uh, this morning we had a, a conference um, with, uh, you know, the uh, Southwest uh, Public Health and also Middlesex London um, Public Health Unit. And we had, you know, a conference where we had folks like developers, and we had folks like uh, parks and rec departments, different municipalities, all having a conversation about that. So I think there is a lot of interest uh, in looking at, you know, how can we design our cities so that they're healthier for people? And very often, you know, in the studies that have been done around improvements, like in, in New York, when we improved areas for um, walkability or bikeability or even transit access, often Retail sales improved, so it was really good for business, uh, and retail vacancies for the developers actually dropped. Because, um, you know, when people are stuck in their, in traffic in their cars, they're not going into your business. But often, if you're walking and cycling, it's very easy to stop and, like, go get a coffee or stop because you see something in the window and you're like, I'll buy that. <laughs> and so, actually, yeah, businesses often tend to spike uh, when you actually improve community environments uh, so that they're more healthy. It's good for actually business and for people. <laughs> it can be a thing that, that lasts over a course of many years, I would imagine, in order to get it going. But what do you find? Is is yesterday the best time to start? Yes. Yesterday is always the best time to start. But if you didn't start, it's not too late. Um, you know, there are lots of ideas in the book, and maybe you can't do all of them all at once. But I think you could probably find one or two that maybe you could start in your own community or in your own organization or your own school where your kids go to school. Love it. Dr. Lee, thank you for taking on this quest because it seems to be going very, very well. I hope it continues to succeed. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Karen Lee took on the quest of actually looking around. We are seeing more parks with what she suggested that Taipei has in Taiwan, and that being exercise equipment and then swings for the kids or whatever it happens to be, or along walking trails. Sometimes you'll get walking trails in various cities that will have exercise equipment or walking trails that interconnect. That's one thing that you absolutely need. I mean, if you can get on and you can do a circle, it's a whole lot better than saying, yeah, I'm going to go for a walk, and then your path just kind of ends, and then you got to turn around and go back. You make it that looping circle, and all of a sudden, you have something there. And they're all very simplistic, and at the same time, you know, we see this in London right now. How many times do you ask the question, why is there a bike path here? Who would use this? This bike path lasts for a block. What is going on here? Who decided to do this? What, it's safe for a cyclist for one block? 
No, it isn't that. It's that this part of the road has been redone. Don't worry. What is behind and what is ahead will hopefully be redone in the future, and that's where they will add in more bike paths and more bike lanes. And next thing you know, we should have continuous stuff. But it does take time, and we've still got a lot of things that are are needing to be done within the city. I mean, look at what unfortunately has to happen with King Street, it looks like. It looks like they will tear that up, and it'll end up being BRT, and then we'll have Dundas as being more the the bike area where cyclists can go for that east-west corridor. But you have to admit, London is coming. There have been some decent changes, and I think I think we need to pat some people on the back to at least have that in mind, because I didn't think it was possible, and then I realized you can't do this overnight, and you can't even do it over a year period, and you can't even do it over a two-year period. This is a big old job, but the best time to start, we talked about it with Dr. Lee, That'll be yesterday. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 